G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Here's what the book of Job is about. All my life I'm thinking, hey, it's about where's God? But recently it dawned on me, no, the book of Job is about this. Where are you? Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome and thanks for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill, and in this episode, we've got more in our series on seasons of life and the season of winter. We all go through seasons. Some are cold and dark and dreary with spiritual challenges, a real contrast to a spiritual summer when we feel so close to God. Let's turn to the book of Job, and we're in chapter two, to seek guidance through these seasons when we feel far from God. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Ever been a time in your life when you felt like it's cold, it's dark, it's dreary, and there's something in your soul, man, that's just not right, and you know it. You just you can't put your finger on it. You don't know what's changed but it's been a long time since you've been able to feel God and His presence in your life like you once did. And that's what makes it even more difficult is the contrast. If you've ever walked closely with God and you felt like that when you prayed, man, God was right there listening. He was gonna be able to respond to you instantaneously. When you read the Bible, it's like you could just close your eyes and open it no matter what you read. It's like God was speaking directly to you. That's the difficult part about spiritual winter is if you've had spiritual summer, where you've walked intently with God and there's been a passionate, intimate, deep relationship and then that's gone. Man, that is horrible. Every believer should have seasons, times when you feel the closeness of God. There should be a time in your life where you could look back and say, man, I remember what that was like. And if you've never had that, that is a concern. That's something that you've got to take some serious introspection because we said last week, sometimes you have to understand that you cannot be in the practice of an habitual, willful sin in your life where that that epitomizes you. It's your defining mark, this rebellion that you have against God. And you're constantly saying, don't look at me, don't look at me, God. And then you wonder why. You have this area in your life and you can't sense the the, the presence of God, that you don't have that depth of intimacy with him. And you've got to take a look when you go into spiritual winter and you can no longer feel his presence. You've got to be honest, man. You've got to ask yourself, where are you in all of that? But the reason the book of Job inspires me so much is because it doesn't have to be that way. 
it, it doesn't mean just because you're in winter that it's because you're doing something really bad. That's a really bad philosophical or theological argument. Sometimes you're in winter because it comes from another place. It has very little to do with you. It's coming from someplace else. And that's why Job inspires me. Job inspires me too because I don't want to pick up the Bible and read about some legendary character, somebody that's not like me. I want a real man, somebody with flesh on, somebody that responds the way I would respond when I don't get what I want from God. And that's why Job inspires me. And that's why if you'll stay with me, those of you who have been in spiritual winter for so long, if you'll just stay with me, you can see the sun come out from behind the clouds, brightness will come, and you can return to what you once had or get what you've never had in the first place. You know the book of Job. Go ahead and turn over to chapter two. He's amassed great wealth, livestock, servants. He has a large family, seven sons, three daughters. He's the greatest man in the East, the Bible says. And suddenly, and this is what makes Job like me, just, just like that, everything turns, everything changes. The hardest part about Job losing everything is not that he lost material goods, but that he can't sense the presence of God anymore. Now, remember what we said last week, two stages here. You got the upper stage and the lower stage. You've got heaven and you've got earth. What's happening in earth can be seen by heaven and can be understood. What's happening in heaven cannot be seen by earth. So it's difficult to understand what's happening. You've got two questions you're confronted with in the book of Job. On earth, you're asking, why is God like this? Why doesn't God come down and let me allow me to feel his presence in a unique and intimate way? Where is God? Why is he absent when I need him the most? But that's not the question in heaven. Question in heaven is this. Is there anybody down there on the earth that loves God the way he loves them? Gratuitously, where you would love God and give to God without expectation of anything in return? Unconditionally, whereby you would love God and your love for him and your devotion and commitment does not depend upon how God acts or responds or the fact that he would give you everything your heart desires. What is it? Remember what happens? Satan goes to God. He says, God, Job worships you and serves you only because it's in his self-interest to do so. It's strictly quid pro quo. That's what we said last week. It's the only deal going on. God, he doesn't really love you. And you're naive to think that Job does love you. Oh, he loves you. But remember what we said? He loves you like children love the ice cream man, like college students love cliff notes, like Cher loves the plastic surgeon. If you turn off your devotion to Job, I guarantee you, God, Job will turn off his devotion to you. So trouble comes to us, and that's where we pick up the story. And remember, we said we needed to know where us was. And because we learned that it's in a far, far away land, the writer doesn't tell us because he wants us to know it's every man's story. The first wave of suffering comes to Job. He loses everything. Think about it. He loses all his material wealth, and then his sons are over having a party at the oldest son's house. And the roof collapses because a great wind comes through and blows the house, I guess, tornado, cyclone, whatever. And all of his children are crushed under the weight. How does Job respond? This is amazing. The Bible says in Job chapter one, verse 20, that Job worships, falls on the ground, and he cries out, may the name of the Lord be praised. I don't think I could do that. I'm not sure if I lost my children. Actually, I know that if I lost my children and everything was taken from me, I don't believe that I could immediately respond by saying, may the name of the Lord be praised. I may talk about the Lord, but it probably wouldn't be in that light. And the 
The interesting thing is in Job chapter 1, verse 22, the Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin. Imagine the frustration of the devil now. I would imagine him coming to God and saying, okay, okay, two out of three, two out of three. You won the first one, but I got a second idea. I want to send a second wave. You didn't touch Job internally. You only touched him externally. You touch his person. Satan says, I'll guarantee you, God, his devotion will leave you. In Job chapter 2, verse 7, Satan then is given permission to inflict Job with, according to the Bible, painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And notice, this time, Job's more like me. His response is like ours. He doesn't praise God this time. He doesn't fall to the ground and worship God. The Bible says he sits at the town dump on the ash heap, probably because he's a leper and he's been declared unclean. He can't even sleep in his own home. He takes a piece of pottery, which is what lepers do, and they scrape themselves. He scraped himself, and he sits and he mourns. Now, that's me. And then his wife comes to him, and she says, curse God and die. Now, folks, this could not be encouraging. <laughs> this is not Dale Carnegie material. But take it easy on Mrs. Job. No one ever does. She lost everything, too. And she's got to be the one to stay behind and pick up the pieces and nurse her husband in his ailment. That's why when a lot of women read this passage, they like to say, you know what? Again, even in the Bible, I can't escape it. It's always about the guy. And they've got a point. Job's response to his wife is this. Shall we accept good, not bad from the Lord? Again, astounding. If we get good, should we not expect bad? And should we not embrace them both? But then there's a little qualifier because Job is beginning to struggle in chapter 2, verse 10b. Job says, or the Bible says rather, Job did not sin this time in what he said. Notice the qualifier. First time, Job did not sin. Second time, Job did not sin in what he said. Because even the blameless and an upright man, when you've lost everything, is going to begin to struggle. And Job struggles like we do. Over chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. That's pretty radical, which proves to me that Job was indeed a sanguine because he's for the dramatic. Because now he says, and I'll tell you something else, I request that that particular day, the day of my birth, would be removed from the calendar. That's a bit drastic. Not just his birthday in his birth year, that day, from now on, every year, it would be removed. And he says, may those who curse days curse that day. Now, he doesn't tell us who these day cursers are. I would imagine it's a limited profession, day cursers. Probably the same people as the anti-Hallmark people, but whoever they are. He says, let the day cursers take a shot at my birthday. Have them curse this day. And the reason he's saying that is because he's asking the same question most people ask in spiritual winter. He's saying, is God the kind of God that sends evil? Is that possible? Is God really good? Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe he's not that good. Why has he done this to me? And why is he nowhere to be found? Why is he theos absconditus, the God who hides himself, especially when I need him the most? And what's really interesting, as you make your way through the rest of the chapters, you'll recognize that even though Job says all this, he keeps clinging to God. He doesn't let go of God. There's the battle. There are the questions, but he keeps hold of God. Which reminds me of something G.K. Chesterton once said, in, in pain and in suffering, the Christian's temptation is to move away from God. But then he says, in heaven's name, to what? See, Job knows 
that would be the epitome of insanity to leave God. If there is no God, then you're really messed up. So he clings to God, but he does what C.S. Lewis says. He brings to God what is in him, not what ought to be in him. And in Job chapter 23, Job has had enough of God. Now, let me just pause here. I say it again. Man, when you're in spiritual winter, you're not doing yourself a favor by living in denial, by acting like everything's okay and saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, every, every time somebody says, how's your life going? The Bible gives us real people that blast God when they're in trouble. They come after him and ask him hard questions because in the tension of clinging and questioning is where the fruit is born. If you deny the tension, you'll never experience the fruit of growth. Job has had enough with God. Here's what he says in chapter 23. Then Job replied, verse one, now verse three. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I can't find him. What Job is saying is inspiring to me because he's saying, okay, God, you and me, what I want behind the woodshed and I'll do the talking, you do the listening. If only I knew where you lived. If I could bring up your address in my GPS, I would go to your house and stand on your front porch and I would demand that you answer me. I would state my case and fill my mouth with all kinds of arguments. And he says, God, if only I could take you to court. If only I could subpoena God and he would show up. Then I would take you on, God, one-on-one, man-to-man. God, if only you would show up. I've got some things to say to you. And in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. God shows up. Now, when God shows up, he doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Well, he does, but he does it indirectly. He asks a series of 64 questions. Let me just read to you a few. This is God talking. Now remember, 37 chapters. And now God is tired of listening to Job. Not really. He's not tired. That's a bad word. He's just, okay, Job, you want answers? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth, but I'll give it to you. And here's what he says. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Why does God respond this way? Listen, I'm going to say it twice. God is forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. God is forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. It's like God is saying this, since you're the kind of man that can only believe in what he fully and completely understands, God says, stand back and let's see how much you really know. And there's this Hebrew phrase throughout this passage, and it's surely you know. It's sarcasm. God uses it too, so it must be okay. He says, surely you know, Job. Surely you know. That's the Hebrew tone written through this poetry. Job, can you explain everything about your own little planet? There are billions of stars and billions of other galaxies. I'm just going to give you the easy test. Can you even explain to me where you live? All the details? 
Can you explain to me how a little baby is conceived in a mother's womb by the marvelous union of a man and woman? No, I didn't think so. Can you tell me how it is that even animals take care of their young? Where were you when the sprawling mountains were put into place? And by the way, Job, can you even explain to me how all this that you so thoroughly enjoy, all of this marvelous world came into being in the first place? And here's God's point to Job. Yet, even though you don't understand it completely, you readily accept it and enjoy it every day of your life. Knowing that you are finite and trusting that somebody else is controlling and holding all this together and you just go about enjoying it. Well, Job, that somebody else is me. I'm the one controlling everything. I'm the one holding it all together. Do you know what the major difference is between you and God? God doesn't think he's you. <laughs> you, you, hear what, you hear what God is saying to Job? Job. There's a thousand things you experience every day in your life for which you do not have complete and exhaustive understanding. A thousand things every day you just accept. Job, your pain is no different. Now, if God stopped there, it would be a hollow victory. But he doesn't. That's just the first statement. And something wonderful happens in spiritual winter. I get very clear about who's in control around here. Something that would never happen in spiritual summer. In fact, when you're in spiritual summer, three very, very bad things happen. Number one is this. You start to think that you're a good boy and girl, and that's why your life is so good. I deserve all this. I've been good. I've been good. I deserve all this. Second, you have very little sympathy for anybody who's hurting because you look at them and you say, look at that, man. Their life's a mess because they deserve it probably. They deserve it because they're bad boys and girls. And third and worst of all, in spiritual summer, there's the tendency that you might start believing that you're in control. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. But then winter comes and you come face to face with the fact that you're not running things. Somebody else is in charge. And as we saw on the upper stage, here is the question. Here's what the book of Job is about. All my life, I'm thinking, and it's a short life, all my life, I'm thinking, hey, it's about where's God? Where is God? But recently, it's, it dawned on me, no, the book of Job is about this. Where are you? Will you be faithful to God even when he doesn't give you what you think you deserve or need? Upon what is your faith and commitment and trust in God contingent? What would God withhold from you that would make you say, well, that's it, man. I'm not going to follow God because here's the thing about spiritual winter. It reveals authenticity. Are you the real thing? Because if you even think, if you leave God in spiritual winter, it reveals you're not the genuine article. I don't think Job ever thought of that. And there are many people in the room who have experienced spiritual winter who would never even fathom leaving God. That's not the question, Jeff. I just read a survey taken in American churches. The question was this. Describe to us the times you grew the most in your faith. Over 83% said times of pain. Times when God seemed distant and I had to search for him. Times when I realized what it was like to be without him. It's kind of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, who doesn't really know the value of his life until he lost it. And then he found a beautiful treasure that had been hidden and the joy returns. Please hear me on this. Some of you need to go treasure digging. You've forgotten how great and wonderful God is. So to help you rediscover that, God sends you into spiritual winter. And at first, you have trouble with any emotion. But then you get to the point where you can't feel God. 
God allows that to happen in hopes that you will pursue and start digging so that the end of spiritual winter will come and you will experience him in a way you've never experienced him before. You will not do that. You will not dig in spiritual summer. Jeff, what do I do then when winter comes? You dig, you seek, you keep bringing before God what is in you, not what ought to be in you. You keep searching, you keep trusting. And the Bible says something beautiful will happen. Now stay with me here, stay with me. That's exactly what Job does. He grasps for God while at the same time questioning God. There's that tension again. And as he does so, he does what people in pain do. He contradicts himself. Look what happens in Job 19 verse 6. Job in this section says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. He blocked my way so I cannot pass. He shrouded my path in darkness. He tears me down on every side until I'm gone. And then just a few verses later, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and I myself will see him with my own eyes, how my heart yearns within me. Do you see what he's doing? On one hand, he says, why are you doing this to me, God? On the other hand, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. He will stand up on the earth. He'll be the last one standing, and he is faithful, and he can be trusted. But why are you doing this to me, God? contradicting himself within every moment. That's what we do when we're in pain. God wants that tension. And if you'll cling to God while experiencing the tension, something beautiful happens. You begin to understand the kind of God God really is. That's what happened. Look at this. It's beautiful. Happens to Job. Job chapter 38, 25. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Now stay with me. This is Oh, this is worth a millennium here. Stay with me. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? To water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Those lines mean very little to you and me, but they would have jumped off the page in Job's day because Israel depended on water and rainfall. But why would God water a land where no people live? That's what Israel would have asked. And Job is learning something about God. That God is a God of gratuitous goodness. He is uncontrollably generous. He is irrationally loving. He is good when there's no reason at all to be good. Good is what God does in his spare time. It's what he does with his weekends. It's because that's what God likes to do, to be good for no reason whatsoever. And so what does he do according to the book of Job? He sends streams of living water flowing out of sheer exuberant generosity. There's a wilderness where no one lives, and yet it is full of beauty and grace because God sends a river, makes a river run through it. As a matter of fact, this work is really good and really interesting. God even delights in the animals that are of no use at all. Consider my friend, the ostrich. <laughs> She looks goofy. She flaps her wings. She lays her eggs and can't even remember where she put them. <laughs> she doesn't even seem to be worth the investment God made. But when she runs, the Bible says she laughs at horse and rider as if to say, is that all you got, man? Is that the fastest you can go? But here's the point. Why waste such talent on an ostrich? In the book of Job, is about God caring for and giving to and delighting in animals and creation that aren't good for anything. And yet he does it. Why? Why would God make a world and create a world like that? Annie Dillard says, because the creator loves pizzazz. <laughs> 
Well, that's an interesting place to pause there. But next episode, we'll continue this message about spiritual winter. It will all make sense by the end as we continue our look at Job and what we can do when our own spiritual winter comes. Jeff, what do I do then when winter comes? You dig, you seek, you keep bringing before God what is in you, not what ought to be in you. You keep searching, you keep trusting. And the Bible says something beautiful will happen. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.